and welcome to another episode of the Bleeding Metal Podcast. I am your host, Kiki, she, her, and today I will be hosting the podcast alone. <laughs> P.S. Hence her regards, though, and uh, I do have a very cool guest today. Will you please introduce yourself? Absolutely. Um, my name is Sebastian. I'm also known, or my pronouns are he, him, and I am also known as Sarcastic Fingers elsewhere on the internet. Um, I'm the founder and also an instructor at Fractal School of Music, and I also stream live music on Twitch. Yes, and that's where we know each other from. Yes. A lot of people here, or, or, or long-time listeners from the podcast, should know that I have been streaming on Twitch for a few years now. I'm actually celebrating my second year anniversary this week. <laughs> Happy anniversary. Thank you. Yeah, we have a very interesting topic today, though. Um, but... Maybe just also for a little bit of context, uh, we met through Twitch Sings, didn't we? Yes. Yes, yes we did. <laughs> yes, we we did a few a few songs together. Even mm -hmm. uh, I remember now. Good times. Yeah, it flies. It's been gone for over a year, almost a year and a half now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, the pandemic year, year of the pandemic 2020 was the last year uh, Twitch Sings was active. And we've talked about that previously on the podcast as well. But it was, um, well, uh, a game, a program, a software thing mm -hmm. uh, designed for Twitch streamers where you could sing uh, karaoke. And the coolest was actually this feature of being able to sing with other with other streamers and with other people that would, were using it as well. And uh, that is how we met each other. And I remember having a lot of fun with you on the songs um, because you are a very skilled and talented singer. And it was just uh, amazing to meet people through that. And that's some of the, of the connections that we made back then. Stood the test of time, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're too kind. And absolutely, that, that was a very cool program. I met a lot of cool people that I still know too bad that they shut it down but um i know a lot of people are still t like finding other ways to connect and sing together and do that kind of stuff which i think is a a testament to how those connections that people made yes yes and we'll still show up in each other's chats and uh, mm -hmm. at least to say hi if we cannot sing with each other anymore yeah <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> yes today we are talking about inclusivity or well, the lack thereof sometimes in music. And we talked a lot about that here on the podcast uh, from an industry, um, especially from the heavy metal industry side of things. And we have followed the women in metal for a long time. So we are big defenders maybe of the, of the uh, argument that we just need to see more um, women and LGBTQIA uh, persons on festival lineups, on stages, uh, but also behind the scenes in um, as booking agents and as managers and also uh, sound engineers, etc. Or at least give them more visibility because mm -hmm. uh, we have been part of this scene forever. For sure. And we have been part of music forever. And so today we want to, to take a step back a little bit and uh, look at music, not so much from the industry side, but also from the history, from the um, instruments and theory and um, all of that kind of amazing things that women have been doing for ages and centuries. Mm -hmm, absolutely. What qualifies me to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> not much, really. I do have my um, bachelor's in musicology, but that's uh, been ages since I have really used it, so to speak. I do have uh, memories of different characters that we will talk about uh, later on as well um, that shaped or inspired and motivated me um, to think about them and to mention them and tell people about them. But what is your story? Basically, I never intended to study music, actually. Um, <laughs> I wanted to be either a veterinarian or a doctor originally. And I, oh, wow. um, yeah, I tell the story on stream a lot, actually, but um, somebody told somebody told somebody that I could sing. And I'd been one of those kids that like my parents had put me in piano lessons when I was young, but I had a good ear. So I um, never actually 
did the work to learn how to read music. Like I just kind of like skated by, by pretending. And, um, mm-hmm. that was a really bad idea. I, t- I tell my students this all the time is like, Hey kid, like if you really don't want to learn how to read music, like fine. And we'll work with that for now, but I recommend you do. Cause you never know if you're going to end up in music school. But, um, and then I, uh, I ended up auditioning for scholarship. I was invited to and I ended up getting the scholarship. So in order to get the scholarship, I had to be a music major. Mm-hmm. And I studied music for a little while. And um, not to like divulge too many of my own personal details, but I, I'm non-binary and transmasculine. And mm-hmm. um, I learned very quickly um, throughout the process that A, it's really hard to be um, a person in music school who can't, who knows nothing about music. So that part was on me. But also that being a non-binary transmasculine person in a system that's like extremely uh, cis-heterocentric and extremely Eurocentric, which was not a problem for me um, because I am white, but um, it is a problem for a whole lot of other people, was mm-hmm. not something that I was going to fit into particularly well. So I ended up... Um, dropping out of my music degree and like doing a whole lot of other stuff. I became a teacher later on after like several, several years um, because I wanted to um, essentially serve the students that fell through the cracks of traditional music education. And um, mm-hmm. that's what I do now. So uh, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yes. Also, that is awesome because that you just, Um, Well, it's not something I was planning on asking, but it is something that I have been wondering a lot about lately, um, or at least in the past few years, about what we do for work and um, whether it has a bigger purpose behind it. Right. Because, I mean, all of us, um, or most people probably, you know, go to work because we need to sustain ourselves uh, financially, etc. But Mm -hmm. how about we also... uh, do things that will make this a better world, a better planet. Oh, absolutely. And uh, there are so many different ways to do that. And um, as you just pointed out, giving the people who, uh, like you just said, uh, fall through the cracks of of this very archaic educational system, Mm -hmm. giving them the access to the information that we should all equally have is very, very important. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, like not to talk too much about like my music teaching, but there's so much that like, the general consensus of music teachers and like by no means is this everyone because there's tons of amazing music teachers out there but like higher ed music education and a lot of private music education like whether it be for kids or for adults or whatever like believing in all, all this gatekeeping and all of this like there are secrets you know and like there aren't mm-hmm. <laughs> you know everything you know musical knowledge is not secret you're not gonna like go somewhere and somebody's gonna tell you something that's like new information that nobody else knows it's all yeah it's all known information, you know? So like, I personally have this philosophy of like, it's not, you know, if you can't afford it, we'll work with you. If you can't, you know, because it's, to me, music is a joy and everybody should be able to learn how to make music if they want to, especially now when so much, so many of us are, you know, it's hard to find joy in the world Mm -hmm. right now sometimes. And so like, I don't know, it's just like, it's one of those things that when I had those realizations over the course of leaving music school until now, I was just like, yeah, I need to do this differently. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't do this the way that I'm seeing it being done, yeah. you know, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's where I come from in this. And it, it's taken a long time and a lot of learning. And that was one thing that I did want to say at the beginning here is like, there's going to be things that I say that may not be right, I'm sure. And like, I'm always open to learning new things. Um, I've learned mm-hmm. so many, like there are things that I used to believe that I realized weren't true. Um, and I think that we're always going to be learning things especially as as we look through history and there was so much um I remember like in my classical music education that I believed at first you know things about being like the one right way a lot of it like being like oh this is the right way to do this Mm -hmm. and then like looking back at it later and being like oh well there isn't one right way that was just the way that I was told is the one right way (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know so um I think that that's the thing to always keep in mind for myself, at least, like when I'm looking into stuff um, to be like, okay, well, this is maybe one way. This might be a, an accepted way, but it may not be the only way, you know? Yes, I can so relate. I can really relate a lot to that. And I think we should and we can take a few <laughs> moments to discuss all of this because I see so many things about my own story or about my own history and what you just uh, told us about yourself in a few words. And uh, what you were saying about uh, reading 
uh, reading notes. Mm -hmm. Same. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. I um, and also this this whole thing about you know uh, doing things the right way and and how elitist mm -hmm. higher musical education can be. Um, here in Germany, the the system is also very strict. And from my experience in during my um, bachelor's, it was also very very gatekeepy, and and mm -hmm. people wearing metal shirts would get you know the evil stares and um, all of that kind of thing that can really discourage you. But also um, the same music was a big part of, or has always been and is still a very very big part of my life uh, that plays a huge role in my. Uh, emotions. Mm -hmm. And right when I was writing my bachelor's thesis, I was finishing my studies and I needed, you know, a kind of a side job. I needed to make some money. And uh, <laughs> I started seeing when I was around 15 and all by ear, I, I never properly learned to, to read notes, to read music. And then I wanted to do music journalism. I wanted to study music journalism, but I went to musicology instead because the um, the test for the music college in Germany where I wanted to start music journalism at was too difficult <laughs> and I couldn't play the piano. I couldn't play any instrument really. And, um, and then I started musicology and I went through those three years without ever properly reading music because I had really good friends who studied with me <laughs> all the time. <laughs> anyway, but after that, I I was looking for, for work, as I was saying, and um, I found this um, recording studio and I just um, wrote them an email saying, hey, if you ever need a background singer or something, you know, I'm looking for work. And they said, uh, we're not, we don't do that kind of thing really, but um, we also have a music school, like a small music academy, and um, we are looking for a singing teacher. Mm -hmm. Would you like that job? And I was like, I'm, I feel zero qualified for this, but I will meet with you. That's <laughs> fine. And they uh, had these um, alternative methods. So they re it was no problem that I didn't know how to read music. Um, they even taught me all about these different methods about how to explain things through movements and colors. And uh, so all of these different things. We still did the whole warming up with the, with the scales on the piano, that much I can manage. But um, after that, yeah, the, uh, as you were saying just before we started recording, um, the voice is this invisible instrument that is inside of us. And uh, it's so difficult to explain sometimes how somebody should do things differently that going by that feeling and trying to explain that feeling was much easier than, than something more technical or theoretical. Mm -hmm. So I actually um, was a vocal coach for uh, over a year. And that actually taught me as a singer a lot of things too, because I saw reflected oh, yeah. in my students have things that I couldn't do better myself. And those are very nice memories, memories that I still cherish. But notation was never part of that, of that uh, teaching method. And it felt that it like it fit with me and with the people who attended those classes because they knew where, where they get, were getting into as well. And they were so different than my private singing lessons as well. The lessons that I had um, throughout my life were mostly operatic singing. Mm -hmm. And that was always from this also gatekeeper elitist kind of perspective oh, God, of yeah. opera is the only right way. And this is the right. only thing you have to learn. And, and, uh, and this is how you do it. That also gave me a lot of uh, anxiety, maybe, and even fear. Nowadays, I would love to learn how to scream and growl and do distorted vocals. Mm -hmm. And I'm terrified that I will <laughs> hurt myself. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so much for um, being able to relate to your story. And also, yes, I think a lot of uh, learning is um, achieved just by doing and trying things out. So uh, this only, this one holy grail of learning is really non-existent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all about individualization, I think. You know, that's my philosophy on learning at least, or on teaching, that is. But yeah, there's nothing like being a teacher to show you what you can do better, I think. You know, you, you're sure. teaching somebody and you're like, oh, I do that. 
I really should. I'm telling this person that I should that they should probably try differently, and and I do that thing, so maybe I should try differently too. <laughs> you know, but um, yes. but yeah, that's uh, teaching is great. I actually it's similar. It's kind of similar how I got my first teaching gig is I mm-hmm. didn't have a job and I needed a job and I saw an ad for a vocal teacher and I applied for it and they um I'd never taught piano because I didn't feel I was a good piano player because I couldn't read music, you know, and uh, I applied for this music this vocal teacher gig because my primary instrument at that I considered to be my primary primary instrument is vocals and they were like I applied for the singing or the vocal teacher gig and they're like okay you teach piano for us too now pretty much like that's a okay. highly condensed version of it and I was like uh what <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a piano player like what are you talking about but uh, so I kind of I, I can relate to that on some levels you know it's like a just do it mentality and I was like I guess I teach piano now and um you know now I I've been teaching piano for several several years and you know I'm like okay I guess I guess I play piano now like it's it's interesting to kind of like and I work with with students on this too of like people be like oh you know I'm not a piano player I'm not a singer you know and like the Mm -hmm. self-identity of what you are you know it's like if you do it you are it you know it's part of that that gatekeeping mentality of like unless you have a degree in it, unless you are a professional, like what qualifies you as a professional, what qualifies you as, you know what I mean? Like nothing, right. you, you qualify yourself as that, you know? And I, I mean, I think that some people see it as like trying not to be disrespectful to people that are doing this as a career. But I think that a lot of the time, I won't say most of the time, but I think that a lot of the time people hesitate to say that they do a thing. Like I know I have students that are in bands that are out mm-hmm. gigging, I mean, like mostly pre-pandemic, but, you know, um, mm-hmm. that are performing, actively performing for money and doing stuff that's still are like, oh, you know, but I'm not really a, a I'm not really a, a, a professional singer. And I'm like, yeah. why? Because you're not famous? Like, what, what level is it going to take for you yeah. to consider yourself a musician? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's interesting to to kind of help people break down those walls that just the general toxicity of m- music culture has built up, you know? Yes, and it's also so weird to have that emerge from something so subjective as music. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what makes good music is is just different for every listener. And um, yeah, it's it's an art. It's just very difficult to put a qualifier on it or to put a grade on it. Right. I don't know. I've always had that kind of. Uh, disconnection there as well but it all comes from this as I was saying before very archaic in my eyes uh, educational system that applies to obviously all all of the subjects but that has has been prevalent throughout uh, history I don't think it has ever been completely um, abolished and thought anew oh yeah definitely yeah and with that I think uh, we can dive in maybe a little bit into the history of of music because the access to the information it's something that has been very guarded and reserved for a high power highly powerful and or religious people and well both of those combined a lot and that left a lot of uh, a lot of women on the on the outside one of my idols forever has been Hildegard von Bingen Mm-hmm. And she was, well, she later became a saint even. Um, she was a German abbess, apparently. And she was a writer and composer and philosopher and um, even a medical writer and practitioner. So I have a book by her, which is about uh, fasting for healing your own body and about mm-hmm. eating the right medicinal plants and all of that. But she also wrote amazing chorals and and hymns and, um, you know, other kind of religious music. And she got to be this amazing musician and amazing um, scientist even because she had the access to that education because she was religious. Right. So that was her privilege, of course, <laughs> away from the privilege that she was, uh, you know, white German woman. <laughs> right, right. I think that the relationship between medicine and music need, not needs to be, but I think it's wonderful that she had that as somebody who is also interested in both medicine and music, because like mm-hmm. I teach from a, um, well, not always, like I said, it's an, it's an individualized approach, but like when it works for the student, I like to teach from an anatomical and musical perspective. Um, so like, especially for voice students, for example, like 
I've got like diagrams of the larynx and stuff like that so that you can understand. I usually just call it like your structures, quote unquote, mm -hmm. but like just meaning like the parts of your body that are doing the things that cause sound to happen in that way, mm -hmm. you know, um, because kind of like what you were saying before, it's hard to, you know, make a thing happen with something that you can't see and you yeah. can't necessarily feel because like the motions are so small. So like to see somebody way, way back in history, you know, who mm -hmm. was also both a medical, um, you know, expert essentially, and also yes. a musical expert. I, I think that it's, that's really amazing, you know, because like, <laughs> like personally I went to college, right. And I was a, I was a triple major dual matriculation, right. Med, Pre-med, pre-vet and, um, opera. And then, or, you know, it was voice. I can't remember what my actual degree name was now. Mm -hmm. And awesome. I remember my advisor and them sending me in to go talk to people and being like, no one in the history of this college has ever attempted these degrees. Like you're not, you're never going to make it. And like, then like I dropped out and being like, well, I guess they were right. <laughs> you know Aww. what I mean? <laughs> but like thinking that like, this is not, this is not unheard of. This has been yeah. done. Like, this is something that like, you know, this person, you know, what, what, when was she born? Um, do you know? The year 1098. That is exactly right. what I was about to about to say. It has been almost a thousand years. Exactly. There is historical precedent for this. Like this is not yes. something that is unheard of. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, there's a lot of um, I think that there's a lot to be said for the medical and or or I guess anatomical maybe might be the right. But like anatomical, physiological, kinesthesiology side and mm -hmm. also the music side being put together as is evidenced, right? You know, way back in history. Yeah. And that also just made me think of that should be like the basis of how we could make teaching vocals more inclusive, you know, just mm -hmm. having the starting point be every person's body that is different. Individual bodies. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because and then it's not a one size fits all approach, you know. Exactly. And also it's not this whole categories of, of you know, the different vocals and, uh, exactly. you know, what is a soprano and I don't even remember the others. But <laughs> Right. Which like also helps us be less of like a um, like cis normative structure, mm -hmm. exactly. um, which is something that is, in my opinion, a little bit uh, like we could move past that, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we don't need that anymore. Um, that like, but um and I could go on for days about that. So I'm, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> but, um, no, go on. well, just the, the way that, um, that structuring vocal types by gender is really yeah. not necessary. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, like we, gender is expansive, you know, we know that, you know, those of us who are paying attention and listening to other humans and, um, mm -hmm. you know, setting our own, uh, agendas aside, because why would we need to ever tell somebody else? what their own feelings about themselves are. And I know that mm -hmm. there are those of us, particularly in America, who um, feel the need to do that quite strongly and quite often. But um, I think that, like, you know, people who are who are maybe, uh, how do I say this, like, politely, but uh, <laughs> who, who, like, believe in progressive ideals and, like, are respectful of other people would agree that, that gender can be expansive. Mm -hmm. Gender is expansive. So, like, why are we relegating vocal music into like two parts are for women, two parts are for men, and that's it. You know, yeah. <laughs> like it's very constricting. So like if we look at voices like, you know, your instrument is unique to you, to your mm -hmm. unique human, you know, and I think that people look at might look at that uh, if you're looking at it closed mindedly and be like, what a slippery slope. That must be so hard. You know, we can't define it then. Well, you don't need to. You know, you look at a piece of music yeah. about a range you look at that range, it's from uh, C3 to E5. Can the person who's trying to sing the song sing those notes? Great. Mm -hmm. Sing that song. You know, and you yeah. don't have to use scientific pitch notation. You know, you can just sing through the song and figure out if you can sing the notes. Like it's, you know what I mean? Like you don't, it doesn't have to be through like the traditional quote unquote, like westernized music teachings ways of doing it. It can be how through however you understand music to be. And mm -hmm. just figure out whether or not you can sing the song. You don't have to do it through standardized voice types that are intrinsically linked to gender and therefore gender roles, because that's how mm -hmm. we as a global society have decided that we're going to enforce that. <laughs> yes. You know? And opening up that door, I yeah. think the possibilities then are endless. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Because like the, if, if we were, I think if we were less strict about it, it might be fine. Just keep soprano, alto, tenor, bass, you know, even including like coloratura and all like all those like subcategories of, um, the mezzos. Mm -hmm. exactly. <laughs> um, because like, for example, I could sing really high when I was studying opera and they were like, okay, um, you will only ever be considered for, uh, like ingenue, like helpless woman roles because you can sing right. really high. And I was like, well, that's cool and all, but I can also sing all the way through, you know, contralto type of like range as mm -hmm. well. You know, yeah. I'd love to go for a pants role sometime because I don't identify as female. That would be really nice for me. And they were like, no, <laughs> like, no, because you've got the upper range and that's not like that common, you're going to be always only offered like women-y like really really like and like that gross kind of like um traditional gender role type of like helpless woman roles damsel and i was in like in distress yeah ex exactly damsel in distress and i was like this just doesn't seem right to me like why is why is this just decided for mm -hmm. a professional singer like yeah and i and i'm sure this was uh, quite a few years ago now so i'm sure that some things have changed since then but it just seemed it seemed inaccurate in terms of how things are decided to me like we could probably do better about that definitely and there is a lot of language that's just i always talk about how powerful language can be and how important it is that we change it and that we make it more inclusive and mm -hmm. um i think english just has the easiest choices with the singular they them and also being able to speak speak about a non-specific person as one yeah spanish and german which are my other <laughs> languages uh, they don't just have that mm -hmm. and so i do think that uh, societies that have those as a mother tongue uh, just have a more difficult time with these concepts of mm -hmm. um of gender and being able to disconnect that from 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 the language or from the things that they are trying to say it's funny because it also occurs to me that i am learning finnish and in finnish the, the third person is actually gender neutral and so they hmm. for them it's just way easier and i always wonder if that also has has really um played an important part in their development you know of a more gender neutral and inclusive equal mm -hmm. society yeah interesting Yes. The thing about about systems of oppression is, um, to me at least, uh, I've never encountered a system of oppression that was not intersectional. So, like, I, I maybe I'll find one eventually, but I've not encountered one yet. So, with the the uh, development of standardized piano key sizes, which may not be something that you're familiar with, I don't know, but um, like piano key sizes, piano, um, like the 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 width of piano keys has not always been the size that they are today um, mm -hmm. is based off of like everything from like sexism to racism to ableism. Like it's like everything in everything is involved. And I could rant about this for like ever for like an hour, but I would love to touch on that if we have time. Yes. Okay. So the piano, as we know it, like the modern piano was developed uh, after like the harpsichord and the clavichord. I think it was after mm -hmm. the clavichord. I don't know. Nobody fact check me on that. I could be wrong. <laughs> um, but um, it was like in the early 1700s. And originally there were multiple different sizes of keyboards, right? Because like, like any instrument, if you think about it, or it, it sometimes can be helpful to think about it in terms of like sports. Um, mm -hmm. Like people have different sizes of shoes because they have different sizes of feet, right? Yes. Um, and that makes sense, right? But uh, different sizes of keyboards, people have different sizes of hands. And so it makes sense to have a different size of keyboards right and um so i'm just gonna like give a brief history of pianos because it is relevant here okay yes please if i may interrupt you for one second before we go forward because we were also talking about uh this other historical figure in music and she is from the 1700s yeah absolutely and she played the harpsichord perfect and was an amazing musician player and uh performer um, and her name is Maria Anna Mozart. Oh, yes. Right. I just, <laughs> I was just talking about this because I saw a video on Instagram the other day and it was just, uh, it, I mean, it was obvious, but at the same time, it blew my mind. So Mozart's sister, Maria Anna, 
and or Marianne, as people called her. She was born in 1751, and it is said that she was as good or maybe even better than uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, her more famous brother. And she at just at some point just had to leave her musical career because she had to get married and, and have kids. Anyway, she played the harpsichord and people, uh, or, or she gets overlooked a lot in classical history. Yeah, well, and I saw I saw a thing when we were talking about um, about Mozart's sister, where like he even Mozart himself like had written that she was better than him. Like she he had written something about like my sister who has all the talent and things like that. And like mm -hmm. yet still, you know, and like I had not even heard of Mozart's sister until literally today, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is just uh, absolutely wild to me, you know that um, that. You know, you would think that somebody like myself, who's actually interested in finding out about these figures in history who um, have just been overlooked, forgotten, not discussed. Uh, and I hadn't even heard about the sister of like, like you ask people who have no interest about classical music, like, oh, you know, who's your favorite classical musician? Right. And people are just like Mozart, which is totally fine. Like not a dig at all. But like mm -hmm. he's like one of the people that if people know no classical musicians there, he's a name that they know. And yeah. yet his sister nobody's heard of her right exactly. and apparently she's just a masterful musician you know it's just very interesting right yeah and i think that the the story goes that uh growing up they attended the same lessons they were given like the same opportunities and there was just this point where he had the advantage just by being born male to mm -hmm. go on and pursue this whole career that made him obviously historically and world famous and she was left behind in his shadow yeah well and that like that totally tracks with like where what I'm about to say too about um, pianos because mm -hmm. and I mean like I don't know the history for sure with harpsichord but with piano like in the 18th and 19th century um, people like only the wealthy could afford pianos and it was kind of like a, a yeah. like a fancy furniture piece <laughs> in some ways because like mm -hmm. you know they're made out of fancy materials they look nice etc cetera, etc cetera. and it was a status symbol to be able to have a piano and wealthy families would mm -hmm. hire like these traveling musician like masterful musicians to come and like teach their children how to play piano and they would usually teach the daughters which is interesting um because we're talking about you know sexism partially here um and of mm -hmm. course in all of these examples that we're talking about the research even nowadays like we completely gloss over the trans community completely because like we just yeah. in research we just act like trans people don't exist because largely they were either mm. you know not out with their families or just not acknowledged like families mm -hmm. would hide their trans children or just not acknowledge their existence so like when we say when i say like daughters versus sons we're we're talking about people not acknowledging their trans kids which i just feel is important to say currently yeah. given the climate that's going on and also just to complete that thought uh history is always written from this very male and white perspective exactly so while we talk about people having pianos in their homes and everything we are also talking about people uh, who are mostly white and could exactly. afford those because yes. um obviously the 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 rest of the population the people of color didn't have access to that at all yes thank you for mentioning that i should have said that definitely wealthy white families that are having pianos mm -hmm. in their homes and they would have these these traveling musicians like teach their daughters predominantly um, but women were not allowed to pursue music as a career. So like mm -hmm. they would have people teach their children, their daughters, sometimes sons were allowed, but like women were basically just supposed to learn piano as a flirtation piece, maybe mm -hmm. so that they would be more attractive to suitors. But mm -hmm. if they learned piano to the level that they would maybe pursue it as a career, it was like, no, no, you can't do that. That's not allowed. Yeah only men are allowed to be professional musicians not women which is like mm -hmm. okay whatever like I'm, I'm, I'm when i did some of this research i was just like blown away right so men are allowed to be professional musicians women are not now in the mm -hmm. in the early to mid 1800s is when like the romantic virtuosos were like the big deal rock stars of the era right so we're talking like chopin Liszt, list uh, sorry i almost said least mm -hmm. um but uh like they were just like you know absolutely people were going crazy over these guys and um, they would be requiring larger and larger venues to satisfy the crowds that were coming to see. And I mean, like it wasn't just those two, they're just the big names that people think about where they were also like 
uh, I'm trying to think like Verdi was a big deal in that period of time and like Puccini and um, I don't know why I'm only thinking of the the Italian composers right now but there was like <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a lot of other of other like virtuosic performers but the the top two on piano were Chopin at least mm-hmm. um, but uh, uh, so they so in order to accommodate larger larger performance halls they started making like larger pianos right well mm. these two virtuosic romantic composers and performers Chopin at least they're both yeah. white cis men right and mm-hmm. they fit pianos that were a certain size their hands did and of course what else is a big deal when you've got two guys that are like big rock star guys competition right other yeah. other people are interested in being like as good as them they're competing with each other so everything needs to be and and it it starts building up this point you know it's or at least competition does like people want to be really good they want to show that they're as good as these guys so it starts making sense to have all the standard or the the pianos be standardized right because then it's mm-hmm. fair quote unquote oh right mm-hmm. i mean it's fair <laughs> if you have the same size hands as yeah. chopin and least do which like I don't know why I keep saying least when his name is list, but we'll just we'll just go with that pronunciation right now because apparently it's too early in the morning and I haven't had enough coffee yet. But, um, you know, the fairness argument, right, if you think about it, it's kind of like um, in many ways going back to the sports analogy. Right. If you have a I I am not a sports person, so I'm just going to make a complete fool of myself for a second. But let's say you have like a two foot hurdle that you have to jump over. I don't know if two Mm -hmm. feet is a reasonable um hurdle or not maybe that's like really low i don't care so let's say that your hurdle that you need to jump over is two feet i don't know um and you are your legs are like you're like five feet tall and your legs are like i don't know three feet long or whatever i don't know i don't know human proportions in this way (laughs) but like you're gonna be at a disadvantage compared to somebody who's like six and a half feet tall whose legs are way longer than you right but like Mm -hmm. the hurdle is at the same height regardless Mm -hmm. because of fairness You know what I mean? Yeah. Like even in sports, like that's not really fair either, but people like think it's fair. So it's kind of the same thing on pianos. Um, Mm -hmm. And even currently, like to this day, the vast, vast majority of people who win piano competitions are white men Mm -hmm. still like white cis men. And um, I looked up some some really interesting statistics that have been put out by the um, there's an organization called Pianists for Alternative Sized Keyboards. I think it's PASC. I'm not sure if they call it PASC or just P-A-S-K. Okay. Um, and they did a study on hand sizes. So the benchmark hand span, which I call wingspan, but basically it's your, if you stretch your hand out from your pinky to your thumb um, mm-hmm. for playing most classical music comfortably is 8.5 inches. All right. Uh, let me look those up in metric. <laughs> I'm so sorry. 21 centimeters seems like a lot yeah right because it they the the composers were cis white men that's a lot of Mm -hmm. it all right so my personal hand span okay like myself is 7.25 inches like at best on my hand that has a larger hand span so that's like Mm 18.4 centimeters difference okay yeah so I already, I don't even have that. I have, I have small hands though. I, I found a, a, a study that was talking about um, like grip strength difficulties for surgeons because you can't really find that much data on like hand span because people don't mm-hmm. study that because who cares about piano players apparently. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding mostly. But um, the, uh, the hand span or the hand length of like the average um, American male is 202 millimeters so that's like 20.2 centimeters is Mm -hmm. that right yeah okay yes whereas the average hand length of the average um i just said average twice i'm sorry of uh the average japanese female is 175.4 millimeters excuse me i'm so i'm being so american right now that's like a full like centimeter and a half difference between an American man, average American man, and the average Japanese woman. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's really interesting here is that ret- the you can actually retrofit a piano with a smaller keyboard. It's not difficult. Like the, the PASK, the PASC organization, mm-hmm. has been um, advocating for different sized keyboards forever. And it's not to make competitions more fair. It's to avoid injury. Because when mm-hmm. you have to stretch your hand out too far, 
you're far, far more likely to be injured. Yeah. Like, sure. I'm sure some of it is for competition purposes, but honestly, like when I teach children, especially, and this is what really got me interested in this is like a child typically cannot reach an octave with their hand. And like a lot of music, you're going to be wanting to do octaves in, you know, which an octave is just like from one note to another note. Um, Do you mind if I play that so that people can hear what I'm saying? Go ahead. Okay. So like an octave sounds like this. Like that's an octave. Mm -hmm. So one note and then to the same note, but higher by eight notes, essentially. Um, And if a kid's trying to play that, they're going to like stretch their their hands really, really hard. And that puts a ton of stress on the tendons. It puts stress actually Mm -hmm. on the bones even to do that. And doing that over and over again can cause injury, can cause, you know, overdue strain. There were even devices like back in the day in history that would, I remember seeing a picture of one that like had um, like little loops that you would put around your fingers and they would stretch your fingers and people would, I remember seeing a, a, a article about that device and that some pianist, like rising star pianist had used it to try to stretch his fingers out and he permanently damaged his hands and couldn't play Ouch. piano anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's terrible. And people do this to try to get uh, an edge, whether it's competitively or whether it's to be a better piano player or they mm-hmm. practice too much and they cause injury to their hands when really we could probably solve the problem by having, you know, reasonable keyboards that suit people's needs you know um and it's not just a uh it's not just a a gender and race issue it's also a an ableism issue i mean there are several conditions that can cause brachydactyly um which Mm -hmm. is like shortened fingers and hands and uh toes and feet Mm-hmm. Um, whether I, I know that two common ones are, uh, Cushing syndrome and down syndrome can both cause like shortening of the, of the hands and fingers and toes and feet. And, mm-hmm. um, like for that, why, why should people who have differences in their finger length not be able to have access to smaller keyboards, you know, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And it's a, it's sort of like any other accommodation, like it shouldn't have to be a big deal. And that's, that's another thing with my, like my approaches as a teacher is, is, is kind of, um, we, at least I know in, in America, we kind of make things out as like, oh, well, you know, if you really need something to be different, you should have to go through all these hoops to jump through. Like I recently applied for an accommodation through my school because I have chronic, chronic migraines and I go Mm -hmm. to an online school. So I was just asking to wear a different pair of toned glasses so -hmm. that I wouldn't get migraines when I take online tests. Right. And they went through this whole system, right, to uh, where I had to, like, prove all this stuff. And I sent them a letter that said the exact accommodation that I needed. And I still had to meet for 45 minutes with somebody to ask if I'd tried all these other things and all this other stuff. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm, you know, all I'm asking for is something very simple. And I'm I'm hugely privileged that I can self-advocate for this, Mm -hmm. you know. And I, I feel very similarly about this keyboard issue is, like, nobody's like getting an unfair advantage or taking advantage of a system somehow by asking for a keyboard size that will allow them to play their instrument without harm. Yes. You know, like we as a music community should probably, in my opinion, maybe should shy away from, like we were saying before, gatekeeping and being like strict and saying like, oh, everybody should have to play on the same thing because equality, quote unquote, in that way is not equitable yes but there's there's my soapbox I'll get off of it now (laughs) no that is amazing because that also makes me think of um if I want to play an instrument I shouldn't need to get one custom made to my size exactly and you don't you can you can buy a regular keyboard digital or um like a digital keyboard or an acoustic piano and it can be retrofit with different mm-hmm. sizes of keyboards like that is totally possible and we just that don't awesome. do it most of the time there are there have been some there have been some uh like competitions and stuff that recently like in the last two years or three years have started to implement stuff like this but it's very rare still that is awesome yeah i'm also thinking about other uh, other instruments as i said in the beginning i don't play any but <laughs> i do know that there are uh, you know small size guitars for children for example mm-hmm. yeah i'm just wondering why is that then not um done in in for other instruments or in other areas i don't know all all of the instruments <laughs> like i know a lot more about my instrument than i do about mm-hmm. a lot of others 
Um, but I know that like violins come in different sizes, but um, I don't know how well those standard sizes work for everyone. Like I'd be interested mm -hmm. in talking to somebody whose primary instrument is violin and who is yeah. like an inclusivity advocate um, to discuss. Like, I think that it's like a quarter half three quarters and full maybe <laughs> don't quote me I, I would fact check myself on that um <laughs> but like do those are those four sizes inclusive enough you know or mm -hmm. or do we need custom sizing you know what I mean yeah um I know that guitars come in different sizes and I don't really know that much more than just that they come in different sizes uh, mandolins also come in different sizes I believe I don't know about brass or anything like that. I'm not, I used to play French horn like years ago, but not well. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I don't know, I don't know about sizing on that, but, um, and this is going to be a huge, a hugely like, you know, uh, I'm sure a radical claim, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of instruments were made for the cis white male body. Because um, if you think about it, like, again, from this research that I was doing about pianos, like, the idea of musical instruments being gendered started mm -hmm. in like the 1500s. You know, women and people perceived as women, I guess, would probably be mm -hmm. the best way to say it. Um, but uh, women, women, you know, people who identify as women, if they were able to pass, but um, w were encouraged to only play instruments that were considered proper for them. Like some of the uh, some of the wording is laughable, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll pull some of it up for you. Uh, and then you can laugh and cry with me about this because <laughs> some of it's terrible. This is a this is a quote from a thing in 1528. All right. Imagine how unlovely it would be to see a woman play the drums, fifes, or trumpets, or other like instruments, and this because their harshness hides and destroys the mild gentleness which so much adorns every act that a woman does. <laughs> like they're just they're just terrible. They're awful. <laughs> The harpsichord, spinet, lute, and bass and violin are instruments instruments most agreeable to ladies. There are some that are really unbecoming to the fair sex, as the flute, violin, uh, hot, hot boy, I don't actually know what that is, the last of which is too manlike, with a capital M, by the way, manlike, uh -huh. um, would look indecent in a woman's mouth, as the flute is very improper. Taking wow. away, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's really incredible how deeply people went into this, yeah. you know? Um, I, I read something about like, uh, that playing a cello would be indecent because the woman would have to straddle her legs around the cello, you know? Right. And like, and so for the history of instruments, you know, people said, oh, a woman cannot put her mouth to an instrument because it's indecent and improper and, you know, can't, she can't move her body in certain ways because not only is she physically too weak to do so, but also it would be too wild in movement, you know, and all of these things. And so I imagine that because this was what was believed, that they mm -hmm. constructed these instruments to fit the bodies of the people they considered it proper for these instruments to be played by. So, yeah. you know, are cellos made to fit male hands and male bodies, you know, like white male hands and white male bodies? Because, of course, like we said before, these were not available to people of color um, or or what like i'd like to do some more digging into this and find it out hell yes i was uh, thinking a little bit about how mind-blowing it would be for the author of that piece uh to see women rocking world stages nowadays <laughs> right? i right? had to think about a live performance by the linda lindas i don't know if you're, you've heard about them but it's a u.s american band it's for young women mm -hmm. and they are incredible and they uh, play this feminist punk nice i mean it is 2022 but uh, at such a young age it's just admirable and i'm gonna link it in the description of the of the podcast but uh it, it's just really really cool <laughs> and i enjoyed watching them very much i love that i'll have to check it out yeah so, um, yes, we have uh, intertwined our critique of the, um, yeah, of the music development throughout the ages <laughs> with our versions of how we could make things better. So how about we just summarize all that again and end on that posit positive note of how we can make music education um, a more inclusive place? <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think that in order to make music education more inclusive, I think that we really need to focus on the student rather than on the kind of like we were saying earlier, you know, um, on the theory or the method. Mm -hmm. Exactly. On standardization, mm -hmm. like putting maybe putting standardization aside and focusing more on the individual students needs. Hell yeah. That is wisdom of the day for sure. And it's also obviously uh, difficult because not everybody has access to uh, personal private lessons. We are talking about, I think, I think maybe the only thing speaking for standardization is the um, possibility to teach groups and or larger groups of people and not having mm -hmm. to focus on each uh, individual individual's needs and skill set uh, but that is actually the exact that is exactly what is wrong with education in general right we have we have uh, schools um, you know having problems dealing with people with uh, ADHD and or uh, you know people who just have a more visual learning than uh, I don't know memorizing everything is not the solution to to how we learned mm -hmm. things. I would add to that my everlasting plea of uh, changing the the language we teach things in or we, we speak in general and uh, making that uh, even more more neutral and and as you were saying um, in the beginning, considering the the expansiveness and or the the gender spectrum that we are hearing mm -hmm. more and more about nowadays because we really should go away from from this binary and just yeah adapt to to each person being different in every way in every possible way one other thing about teaching i think that would be important and i know it doesn't seem possible a lot of times to small businesses but maybe um being a small business owner myself um the thing one thing to bake in would be um allowing for and making sure to in with intentionality including whether it be sliding scale or offering free resources or um you know ways to make music education accessible mm -hmm. because i think that a lot of people focus on like too much on standardization and also too much on profiting from music yeah. education um because like yes of course we all have to make a living yes that's super important i'm not diminishing that in any way but if you know, if that's all we're focusing on, I think that we lose sight of what's like music can be critical. Music can be life and death for some yes. people. Like I, and I mean, I, I think that that may sound like an exaggeration, but I know people that know that have a song that saved their mm -hmm. life on a time when they were in a really dark place. And, you know, if, if teaching music is that important, you know, to some of these or learning music is, is that important to some people, like try to find a way, whether it's by supporting it with another side gig, like a, you know, not necessarily just you working a side gig, mm -hmm. but something else that can support your industry or your business being able to offer free or reduced cost lessons or free resources that people can learn on their own with a YouTube channel or something like that, that offers like free lessons or something where it's not just if you can't pay, you're out of luck. Yeah. You know, I think that that's a really important thing as well as treating your instructors well making sure that you you find good people that you that really know how to how to do that individualization in learning or in teaching you mm -hmm. know what i mean and treating them right so that you don't lose them because i think that's that one thing that people don't um like i've worked at franchises mm -hmm. and stuff like that for for music lessons and i don't know how it is where you are but like um as i'm sure is a reputation in america like we're all about paying people very little <laughs> and expecting a lot of them you yeah. know um but like treating people right, treating your, treating your students right, treating your teachers right. You know, like, I think that's a really important thing that what all the way up the chain from the smallest mom and pop shop, you know, music teaching organization, all the way up through higher yeah. ed music education. I think that's something that we could all improve on treating people. Right. Yes. Yes. That is very important. And of course that applies to, um, I think to every other aspect of our lives as well, you know, to just treat people with respect and kindness, even also, what has become um, a thing uh, also in recent years is to learn everything through YouTube, um, mm -hmm. especially in music. And I think that is very, very practical, but that mm -hmm. would also be, um, you know, digital st standardization even. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. I think the human contact is very important and also the feedback. Absolutely. Just to get advice on how to how to improve yourself. No YouTube video is going to tell you what you're doing wrong specifically and how you could get better. So that is very important. And also, yeah, just the the the, the human touch of everything with, that in art is very special. And what you were saying before as well, sometimes uh, music lessons can be therapy and can be therapeutic and can help a lot with mental health, which is something that we uh, talk about a lot on this podcast. And also May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And so if going to that music lesson mm-hmm. uh, once a week, once every two weeks, yes, music can save lives and change lives. And that is why it is important that we give everybody a chance to tell their stories through music. And going back to what I was uh, yeah. about to say before, diversity in every industry is really, really important because people are just um, from their different lens and their different per- perspective of la- on life. There comes uh, unique uh, music in this case, or unique art and unique creation, and that is, for example, the case for our, for the last of the figures that we looked up uh, in preparation for the podcast, who composed the score to Clockwork Orange, A Clockwork Orange, and The Shining, as well as Tron, and her name is Wendy Carlos, who was actually. Uh, a trans woman and raised a public awareness of transgender issues in 1979. So that it is just so important to see all of these figures. And, and these are just some very little examples, but um, we have been unique and different for thousands and thousands of years. And it's time for us to just see that and, and make each other's unique names uh, more visible because it enriches our lives and our mm-hmm. music and uh, everything. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be uh, all for today. But we've been ending the episodes lately by asking each other what you're listening to. So uh, do you want to share what's on your uh, record player and or streaming (laughs) platform? Oh, goodness. I have been listening to a lot of classic soul lately. Mm -hmm. Um, So like Aretha Franklin, Otis Redding, like that kind of stuff right now. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. That tends to be that tends to be pretty standard, to be honest with you. Like I'm usually always listening to that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I recently went on a road trip and we uh we made a like super long playlist and it had a lot of a lot of good old music on it. Oh, that's lovely. That is really nice. Well, I uh from the bit of a heavier side, I just discovered an amazing cover of Muse's uh, Stockholm Syndrome by Era. Mm. I didn't know of the band and it was just uh amazing so i've been listening to that song specifically uh for for a few days now almost on repeat and also uh, what i will link in the show notes uh the linda lindas it's a tiny desk performance awesome yeah i can't wait to check that out hell yeah thank you so very much for all of your words of wisdom and, and insight and sharing your story with us oh thank you so much for having me we have been uh, trying to to get you <laughs> to get know, to have this conversation it's finally. Been so long, for a while. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 never sorry. It's been fine, um, but it was just something that we, um, yeah, we mentioned briefly at, or you mentioned it very briefly at some point on on one of your streams on Twitch, and it just caught my attention, and I, I really, really, really wanted to have this conversation and it paid off. So uh, thank you so very much again. Um, tell us where people can find you on the internet. Uh, yes. Um, so I am on Twitch at, um, oh goodness, is it twitch.tv? Is that the yeah. end of Twitch? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's twitch.tv slash sarcastic underscore fingers. Um, and then that's kind of my primary right now, to be honest, but the music school that I, um, is it okay, all right if I promote yeah, the music of school? Okay. Um, so the music school that I um, I founded and I also teach at is called Fractal School of Music, and our website is www.fractalschoolofmusic.com, um, and those are kind of the the two big things that I do. Awesome. Do you also teach online? Uh, yeah, that's that's through Fractal. Yeah, so um, we schedule like our lessons and stuff online. It's all all online, so you can 
sign up from anywhere in the world, pretty much. We've got students actually all over the place. Perfect. I will link all of that as well in the description of the episode. And you can follow the Bleeding Metal podcast on Spotify and Stitcher or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Uh, we'd be super grateful for your reviews and, uh, you know, just tell a friend. Tell them how useful and interesting this episode was. <laughs> and or uh, let us know what you uh, what whether you fact checked us and, <laughs> and have some corrections. I'm open to that. It's fine. We are uh, at Bleeding Metal Pod um, on Instagram. That's where we are most active right now. And otherwise, you know where to find us. Thank you so very much, Sebastian. It was really a lot of fun to have you here. Thank you so very much. It was great to be here. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for listening until the end. Have a great rest of your uh, weeks and days or whenever you're listening to this. And uh, yeah, we'll see and or hear each other next month. Thank you. Bye.